Hello, all. Good to see you all. Thank you for letting me sit on this throne. Makes it a little bit easier for me. Thank you. You know, uh, appreciate Mark and Mark uh, kind of bringing us to this moment. This is a little bit of a shift in the week in the sense that earlier in the week, the idea has been um, how do we fellowship with one another throughout the body of Christ where there is this vertical element of a connection to the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.9 tells us that we've been called to a fellowship with Jesus Christ. And um, so there's that vertical element that we talked about on Monday, um, the idea of fellowshipping with the person of Christ, but also this idea of a horizontal fellowship. Um, Paul said in First uh, um, Thessalonians 2.8, we share not only the gospel with you, but our own lives. He's, he's talking about that gospel that brings us into contact with Jesus, uh, giving us that relationship with the Father, being filled and empowered by the Spirit. He, he tells us we not only are passing on to you a gospel, but we're passing on to you our own lives. And that's sort of the picture of uniting a vertical fellowship with a horizontal fellowship. First uh, John, uh, John 1 7 says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. And that's the idea of that horizontal fellowship. So what we've been talking about really all week is the idea of how we fellowship with the Father, how we um, intimately connect with God, but also how we intimately connect with one another. And that's, that's what we're looking for. But today the shift is a shift towards what we're calling authentic fellowship, not so much just in the church in general, not so much in the workplace or the public forum through evangelism, or not just in our family, but more intentionally what we're calling authentic fellowship as personal ministry. Um, we've defined it, this authentic fellowship phrase. We, the definition we're using for this week is that authentic fellowship is intentional loving care for each other in community, centering on the presentation and application of biblical truth. So it's, yes, it's this idea of caring for each other, but it's not just caring for each other just like a good friend. It's also looking to the scriptures and finding out how do we bring the scripture into that relationship. That, that is um, this idea of authentic fellowship. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to turn to um, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. I want us to look at a, just a couple of verses to kick off this, this time. My, uh, I've been a Christian for uh, 43 years, and one thing that I did not know when I first became a Christian, but now know certainly uh, when I understood what it meant to know Christ and what it meant, when I found out what it meant to be connected with another believer, I just thought everyone would engage in fellowship as a regular thing, that people would share meals, they would go to one another's houses, they would 
talk about their family, their life, and be open to how God wanted to pour into their life. I thought that would be the norm, the normal Christian experience. Um, I've been surprised to find that many people who genuinely know Christ actually kind of want to avoid the interpersonal connection that fellowship requires. There's a verse in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1, that says, the man who separates himself seeks his own desire and quarrels against all sound wisdom. The man who separates himself, he does so to seek his own desire, but in the process quarrels against all sound wisdom. It's the idea that when I'm not accountable to you and when I'm not connected to you and when I'm not getting, I'm not getting to pour my life into you and you're not getting to pour your life into me, I'm actually going to have a life process, the more that happens, the further I will get from a quarrel against all sound wisdom. And, and uh, so we're, 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 trying to, we're trying to look at this idea of how to encourage each other towards that, that authentic fellowship. Um, but I also want us to recognize the shift that, that's taken place. The reason we're talking about this idea of, and Mark mentioned biblical counseling, the reason we're making a shift here uh, from general fellowship to the specific fellowship we call biblical counseling is this. Um, <clears throat> over a year ago, some of us leaders got together to talk about a biblical counseling conference, and we had two very committed leaders from this church who sat with us and listened to us and talked and finally said, you know, <clears throat> if you had a conference that had the word biblical counseling in it, I, I wouldn't come. And I thought, why is that? And they, they said, well, frankly, when I hear the word counseling, I think of some guy in a tweed jacket smoking a pipe while you're lying on a couch, and he's sitting behind you nodding his head and asking how you really felt about your mother. And that's just not a, at all what we think of when we think of biblical counseling. When we think of biblical counseling, really when this phrase came up, the phrase authentic fellowship was not ours. It was really came up by a group of people who were thinking, how do you normalize? They knew that one of our biggest dreams was, how do you normalize biblical counseling as just a normal part of Christian life? And they came up with this idea of authentic fellowship. And frankly, I think it's a little better than the word biblical counseling. I mean, biblical counseling, I, it's not that I'm opposed to it, but it throws people off because of that word counseling. Really what it is, is how do you just share life with each other and share life in light of the scriptures in such a way that it encourages and challenges and, and, and draws people in a direction they need to be. So let's look at a verse where we see that actually happening. And they don't use the word counseling here. It's uh, Hebrews chapter three, verse 12 and 13. Hebrews chapter three, verse 12 and 13. And if you got a handout, you'll see that marked there. Take care, brethren that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now notice this, he's speaking to Christians. He calls them brethren. He's already done that multiple times in the book. The writer of Hebrews is speaking to Christians, but notice what he says, and notice he would not say this unless this were possible. Remember that. If you're a person who today comes to a conference like this, in all likelihood, you've come to a personal relationship with Christ through faith. But look at what it says. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you 
in any one of you Christians, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That means it is possible for a Christian, for their heart, to be increasingly unbelieving and to slip away from the living God. Notice he makes a point of using that adjective living. He could have said fall away from God and it still would have had meaning. But the point he means is you're falling away from a personal God. You're falling away from a God who is still living. Yes, the Lord Jesus was put on the cross, but he was raised from the dead just as sure as shooting. And he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And they, and you can know God. He is a living, personal God. But you, Christian, you have the potential in you to fall away from the living God because your heart has this inner capacity to move towards unbelief. That's what it's saying. So, okay, what does authentic fellowship have to do with that? Well, look at the next verse. But, meaning in contrast to letting that happen, encourage one another. And the word he uses for encourage is a word, nutheteo. And the word nutheteo means to encourage, to challenge, to provoke, to teach, or to exhort. So it's more the idea of building courage into a person. It's not like just patting them on the back and say, I love you, man. You know, sometimes that's how we use the word encourage. That's not what he's saying. It's actually more like challenge one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does he mean? Well, what he's explaining is the way that I can fall away from the living God is that my heart has to get hard first. The way that I, as a Christian, can fall away from God is that my heart has to get hardened first. Well, how does that happen? Well, it, it's because I get deceived. And specifically, I, I, I get deceived by my own sin. So here's the, the idea is this. Pretend for a moment, you know, that everybody in your church and my church is a Christian. It's certainly not true, obviously. You can walk into an assembly, and a lot of people have been around God maybe their whole lives, but they never understood the simplicity. They never understood. They knew they were sinners and they knew Jesus Christ was the son of God at some level. But but maybe they never came to the point of understanding the simple exchange that God says, my son died for you so you wouldn't have to. He paid all of the price of your sin and he did it and offered you life forever to receive by faith. And there are people who have been around that message and never heard it. I know for a fact that I believed in in October of 1974, but as I went back years later to follow back in my life, I encountered at least half a dozen very specific times and probably more like 20 where that message was com communicated, but I never heard it. But notice a person can come to that knowledge. They can come to that knowledge of Christ, but their heart can still have elements of unbelief and fall away from this personal God and the antidote to it is to be encouraged day after day by somebody else in the body of Christ so that my own sin will not harden my heart. Because you see, if I'm allowing little sin to continue to dwell in my heart, it will harden me and I will slide away from the living God. So see, biblical counseling is really almost an artificial concept and I'm using the word almost there, just bear with me. 
If I had a choice between a church like this one with a hundred well-trained biblical counselors who had read and been challenged and gotten into good dialogue and good training by other men and women and, and really knew how to involve themselves in the deepest affairs of people's lives and willing to work with one or two people a week, if I had that, or instead of that, I had 50% of the church who were committed believers who really believed that it was normal to draw alongside one another when they're suffering, draw alongside when they're sinning, draw alongside when they're struggling, when we don't even know whether it's suffering or, or we don't know if it's suffering or if it's sinning. We don't know. We just know there's a struggle. If I had 50% of the congregation who was willing to just draw alongside and bring them before the throne and go to the scriptures, encourage and challenge and pray and support, I would take that every day. Our strength is not in specialists. Our strength is in the living God and in the body of Christ. Being honest enough to share real things about life before the word of God and before the person of God. That will have more of an impact, mark my words. So at one level, it's almost artificial that we train people in this church for biblical counseling, which is what we're going to be doing the rest of the day. I'm glad you're here. I suspect every one of you will get something out of it where you'll say, you know what? I think I'm a little more equipped as a biblical counselor than I was when I walked in. I expect that. But my biggest desire is not that any of you walk out of here as specialists, but that everybody here realizes I need in my life people who draw alongside me and others do too. And God has called me to it as normal Christian living. That is authentic fellowship. Mark made the example of the pastor who drew alongside him and in a loving way challenged him in an area of sin. And yes, that is a part of this authentic fellowship. But part of that authentic fellowship is also what my daughter did to me the morning that my dad died, the night before at 11, and I found out at 6 in the morning when she met me right outside that door and saw me walking. I hadn't seen her because I'd come into church early. I had to teach, and, and I hadn't seen her. And, and, uh, and um, so as I went walking down the hall and she saw me, she just reached up and put her arms around me and held me and just said, Dad, I'm just so sorry. I was so glad she didn't speak. Drawing near one another is meant to be the normal Christian experience. And when you don't get it, and when you don't offer it, and when others don't offer it to you, eventually every one of us in this room has the potential of becoming the Proverbs 18 one person, a person who separates themselves and seeks against and, and quarrels against all sound wisdom. Turn also, if you would, and this is rather than going through a book or a section, I'm just going to go through a few examples, and I'm hoping this paints a picture for us. Look, if you would, at another one, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
What I'm trying to do is suggest that this idea of what we call authentic fellowship as personal ministry or what we call biblical counseling is actually a very normal Christian calling. Second Timothy chapter 2, we are at the very end of the chapter. Verse 24 reads, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. A bondservant, by the way, it was a little bit of a technical term. There's a, a word in Greek, doulos, which just means a servant. And there's a word, soon doulos, which is a, it's kind of an elaboration on the idea of a servant. But what a, uh, what a soon doulos or a bondservant was, was somebody who knew that they had been freed. Uh, like Jesus says in John 15, no longer do I call you servants. I call you what? Friends, right? Jesus wanted them to know, if you've come to Christ, you're free. You're not under the law. You're free. But what a soon do loss is, is a person who realizes, what, yeah, I've been freed, but I can't think of anything I would rather do than just be available to serve my God. In my life, I was a Christian four years before I ever made that decision. I'd heard about it from early days. But all I was ready to do was receive the gift and grow. I was too afraid he'd send me to Biafra or Virginia or some other place. So I, I wasn't about to just offer him my life and say, I'll do anything that you want. But as I found what a remarkably good God he was, and when I found out what a remarkable fool I could be walking in my own strength, I came to a point where he broke me four years after I came to Christ. And I said, Lord, you do anything you want with me from this day forward. Your worst is better than my best. I believe that's the day I became a sundulos, the day I became a bondservant. It has nothing to do with a role. It has to do with a heart that says, I know I've been freed, but I'm yours. You do what you want with me. Look what he says about the Lord's bondservant. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. And when he says opposition, he's not talking about in opposition to you. He's talking about in opposition to God meaning you're talking to a man or a woman who at some area in her life or his life is in opposition to God. And he's telling you what you're supposed to do when that's the case. You're not to be quarrelsome. How many times have I been quarrelsome with people I'm trying to correct, either in my own family or people I'm counseling? How easy it is for me to do combat in my own strength. And you know what? It always causes more trouble than it helps. Well, that's because the Bible tells me what I'm supposed to be, and it's not quarrelsome. Rather, it's remarkable. He gives us the exact opposite idea, be kind. Kind is the opposite of being quarrelsome. At the same time, being kind, be able to teach. In other words, explain to them where they are in opposition to God, not to you. But notice this, that next word, and by the way, if you're going to be a little more of a biblical counselor, a little more of an authentic fellowship man or woman as a result of this week, which I pray is the case, that's what all of us have been praying, notice the next phrase, patient when wronged. Why does it say that? Because if you go into the gap in a man or woman's life or a young person's life, and you go into the gap with them, I can guarantee you they will wrong you. In other words, 
you're trying to help them move towards what's right and away from the potential of that which is wrong, right? That's what you're doing, even in suffering. I mean, you draw along people who are suffering, who are groaning, who are aching, but maybe they've got a little bit of a closed fist against God too. They are ticked off that he has not found a better way to do what they thought he should do if he was a good God. Let me tell you, if you enter into that kind of a person, yes, they're suffering. And yes, they need your patient compassion and humility. They sure do. But you know what else they need? They need to be rearranged according to the truth. And if you're going to try to rearrange them, help them be rearranged according to the truth, don't be surprised if they wrong you. What else does it say? With gentleness, correcting those in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Folks, what it just tells us is God has to grant them repentance. And, and they're in a place where the enemy may be grabbing hold of them. They may be in the snare of the devil and they don't even know it. So instead of getting so mad at them, which I have done more times than I can count, what I need to do is be humble enough to realize, wait a minute, this is a God thing. If you're counseling with somebody, if we use that word, it's a God thing. If you're, if you're struggling with a person who is full of anxiety because they're afraid of all the bad things that could happen, and by the way, they're right, and they say, I just can't trust God because of my anxiety. And what they mean by that is, if I could get rid of all the sources of anxiety, maybe then I could trust God. And any of us who have been there start laughing because we realize, oh, no, you don't understand. The way that anxiety loses its power is by trusting God when the anxiety is smack in your face. It's the same way courage happens. People say, I, I would like to have courage, but I'm too afraid. If God could take my fear away, then I'd have courage. No, you don't need courage if there's no fear. Courage only comes about when there's fear. Notice, if you're a person who is free because of your faith in Christ, you're invited elsewhere in Scripture to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice, basically a soon do loss. And in that passage, he goes on and says what that type of person does and how they relate to other people. And that's exactly what we look at here. Turn to another passage, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Just a couple of more, and then we'll wrap this up. Colossians chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. By the way, notice that the experience of the peace of God actually relates to how you're connected to one body. Part of how I get God's peace in my life is that I've got brothers and sisters who draw alongside, who pray for me and are examples to me, and that helps me address this, uh, gain that peace 
of one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom. Notice this, folks. This is just talking to us regular Christians. Let the word of Christ, that's this, richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Notice these two words, teaching and admonishing. Teaching is pretty obvious. You're at a Bible church. Bible churches teach. But I think a lot of us are really afraid of the idea of admonishment, either to receive it or to give it. But the Bible just looks at it as a normal thing. You admonish. When, when I wanted to, our family was getting ready to drive one of our kids to college one time for the normal back to school, bring all the stuff from summer and set them up back in their dorm and that kind of a thing. Diane came to me and said, uh, our child wondered if maybe I could just take them without you. Why? Well, because you become all anxious and freaked out and it looks like you don't really like it. I love it. I feel like a dad when I'm taking a kid to college. You know, it's like one of those deals you do and you, I, I, I can't, what do you mean? Well, you become like a drill sergeant in order to keep everything the way it's supposed to be. I mean, you've got everybody got a plan. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. I said, well, they tell you that if your car is parked there more than 30 minutes, you'll get a ticket. I don't want to get a ticket. I mean, but notice, folks, I'm assuming I'm right, right? I'm assuming they're wrong. You think that might be part of the reason that they don't want me to go? I do. But through Diane and through that kid talking with me, they gave me a little admonishment. Dad, we would rather your confidence in God and your peace create an atmosphere of peace for us, even if you have to get up and move the car. Folks, I want a family that admonishes and teaches, and I want a church that does, and I think Jesus does. He tells us, that we do this with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God and whatever we do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through God the Father. This is all part of something we kicked off last Sunday. We looked at Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians chapter 4, it says in verses 15 and 16, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. How does that happen? It happens that as I fellowship vertically with the Father, and as I fellowship with you in the middle of whatever suffering whatever struggling, whatever sinning. And if together we go to the scriptures and we seek them out and we invite the input of other people and we kind of let down some of the pretensions, I believe it's possible that we'll become stronger as a body. I just don't want to live the life that I'm easily inclined to, which is that life of separation. Because I haven't seen anything good come out of that. I'd like to close by just one comment that'll sort of prepare you for the rest of the afternoon. Hopefully, 
hopefully you picked up a card on the table, and if not, you can get one shortly. There's a card that lists six steps of biblical counseling, which is, for those of you who are new to it, that's what we'll be addressing for one of our sessions right now. We're going to be addressing six sessions, six steps that can be used in a family or in a, any kind of personal ministry uh, relationship like biblical counseling. Uh, six steps that we'll address. I will define for you biblical counseling as we look at it here at the church. Biblical counseling is the intentional drawing alongside of one person with another. Intentional drawing alongside to help them address areas of sin, struggle, and suffering from the scriptures rather than from a position of human wisdom. That's what we see biblical counseling as. Intentional drawing alongside to help people who have a struggle or suffering or sin from the scriptures rather than from human wisdom. And we hope that as you look at building involvement and giving hope, which will be the next session, there, by the way, will be another, those of you who are already familiar with that, there'll be another session across the hall on a totally different topic, and you'll see that mentioned on the back of the notebook. Um, Building involvement, giving hope, gathering data and interpreting the issues biblically and then teaching biblical truth and well-targeted homework. Each of those will be explained for those of you for whom that's new. And if that is not new for you, um, you may want a refresher. And if, if not, then you may want to look at some of these other issues like helping the deeply wounded or dealing with resistance. What do you do when people push back or counsel from the cross? You'll see those opportunities. Let me close this if I may. Father, I want to thank you for the fact the kind of God who draws alongside us like Mark's pastor did. You love us, and you speak to us, and you often do it through the body of Christ. Father, would you just make us a little more aware and a little more willing so that we don't fall into that danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of our own sin and wander away from the living God? Bless your name. Amen.